0: I wonder if anybody wants to try to guess how many laws there are in America. At all levels of jurisdiction, from counties up to the top, how many laws are there? Do you have a guess? Over 2 million. It's actually a trick question. You're probably right, but it's a trick question because nobody actually knows. Seriously, nobody actually knows. There are at least 20,000 laws that govern gun ownership across the country in 2010 There were 40,000 new laws that were enacted in America, 40,000. And then um, actually Congress tried to get a handle on this about 2012. um, The House of Representatives called on the Congressional Research Office. They said, I want you to find out how many criminal actions there are in the U.S. Code. And five years later, the research branch came back to the Congress and said, we can't tell you the answer to that. We don't have enough manpower and resources to do the work required to find out the answer to that question. And so, I guess on one hand, we're just talking about Ten Commandments today. So, that's maybe manageable. But maybe you're thinking, man, we got all these laws. I don't need any more. All right, I don't, I don't, I don't want to come to church and find out about more obligations, more commitments, more rules and regulations that I'm supposed to keep. I've got enough of those with the government on my back all the time. But I wanted wanted to make sure you understand what is really God's intention in giving the Ten Commandments. Because it's not to burden us down with another set of rules that we have to follow. That's not what God has in mind. God's ideal is not to just shackle us with a bunch of things we have to do that are going to take all the enjoyment out of life and just crush our dreams and our desires in life. That's God's intention, really, in giving the Ten Commandments is for our good. His intention is to help us to create a life where we will thrive, where we will flourish, to create the conditions for families to be strong, for society to be whole and healthy. And that's why he gave us this. And we get a sense for that by looking at how God began the Ten Commandments. There's a little preamble to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. That's where we're looking today, by the way. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 2 that shows us a little bit of the heart of God behind these Ten Commandments. Because God, I suppose, we might have expected God to say, I'm God, you're not. This is the way it is, right? Or if God to say, hey, I'm God. I can send you to hell if I want to. You better do what I say. But instead, this is what God says to open the Ten Commandments. He says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. So this gives us a glimpse in the heart of God because it's important to understand that the heart of God is what gives us the law of God. And out of that comes human thriving So the heart of God, what is his heart in giving these Ten Commandments? He says, I'm going to remind you something. Let me remind you who I am. I'm the Lord your God. I'm the one who loved you enough to bring you out of slavery in Egypt. I'm the one who invested in you, who heard your prayers, who heard your cries, and I came and intervened in your situation, and I brought you out of your slavery. I'm the God who has given you freedom. And then he goes in to to give the Ten Commandments from there. And so we want you to understand this is the heart of God that's behind uh, these things. And this is the intention. We're going to look at every one of the Ten Commandments over the next few weeks, and this is the heart and intention of God for every single one of the ten. He wants us to thrive. He wants us to have his best. He cares about us. Now let's take it back for a second. Let me give you the background a little bit about what is happening in Israel at the time that this was given, okay? So Back then, as I mentioned, the Israelites were in slavery in the nation of Egypt. They had been for many generations. It was all they ever knew. But they were crying out to God. God sent a deliverer to them, a guy named Moses. And Moses led the people out. Through Moses, God brought some plagues and some other things that softened the resolve of the Egyptian government so they were willing to let the people go. They changed their mind, and Israel watched. As God destroyed the whole army of, of Egypt, the most powerful empire in the world at the time, God destroyed their army, set them free. Now, God was going to take them to a land of their own, a, pre, a place that they could own, a land of promise. And on the way to that new land, that new homeland, He says, I want to meet you down in the desert. So He brought them down to Mount Sinai, where they met with God as a nation, and a very significant thing happened at Mount Sinai. Under Moses' leadership, God met with them, and he, and he initiated a covenant relationship with his people. Now, a covenant is a formal relationship that's based not on contract, but it's based on mutual faithfulness. So God says, I'm going to be faithful to you. I'll be your God. And you're going to be my people. And let me explain to you what it means for you to be my people, what it means for you to be faithful to me. And in that context, then he gave them the law of Moses, as it's known today. So he enters in this covenant. It's called the Mosaic Covenant because Moses was the mediator of it. Okay, so in that law that became their law code as a nation, their book of their legal book, and in that law, it prescribed certain things. Say, so if you if you live this way, then you place yourself in the pathway of God's blessing. God will bless you. If you live this way, then God is going to have to discipline you. And so, it laid out very clearly the kind of life that would lead for them to flourish as God's people—a God-centered, God-blessed kind of life. And at the heart of that covenant is the Ten Commandments. They're written by God himself. He gave them directly to Moses. Moses brought them to the people. God just, I don't know how he did it, but he zapped them onto two stone tablets. And um, Moses brought them down. The first four are vertical because they talk about our relationship with God. And the, the last six are horizontal because they talk about how we get along with other human beings. And so, again, I I want you to understand clearly here from verse 2 that the context of God giving the Ten Commandments is His grace. It's His mercy. It's an act where God says, I want the best for you, and so I'm going to give you this code of living that's going to help you to experience a great life in relationship with me and a great life in relationship with other people as well, really the life that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead for us to have today. And so, if you're not sure that the Ten Commandments is really for our benefit, then just think for a minute about what life would be like if everybody followed the Ten Commandments. What would life be like, right? You wouldn't need a lock on your door, you wouldn't need an alarm system on your car. Right? You wouldn't need fraud protection on your credit card. Right? You, you, there wouldn't be any courts. There wouldn't be any police. There, there wouldn't be any prisons. If everyone followed the Ten Commandments, it would be a great life. It would be a better life than it is right now. That's the heart of God behind giving this to us. <clears throat> now, these were given like 3,500 years ago to a people in a different culture, a different cultural setting, and, and a lot happened spiritually in God's plan between Mount Sinai and today. And so we have to think about how these ancient principles might apply to us today because we're not Israel, okay? The Ten Commandments were part and parcel of the Mosaic Covenant. They were at the heart of it. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant anymore. That does not govern our relationship with God anymore. Right? Because Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross and he rose again from the dead. And those events brought the covenant of Moses to completion. So it now no longer applies. It is obsolete. And instead, God initiated a new covenant between himself and his people through Jesus and through what he has done. And so, everything is going to look different through the lens of Jesus. The Ten Commandments are going to look a little bit different because Jesus transformed and intensified all of them, and he helped us understand the heart of them. And so as we go through this series, we're going to have to always be looking at the Ten Commandments through as a Jesus follower, not just as an ancient Jewish person would look at them, okay? Now, just because Jesus came and he's so central, that that doesn't mean that... We're not supposed to follow God anymore, right? So Jesus himself said it like this. He said, if you love me, keep my commands. So Jesus doesn't just make, make everything, the principles of the Ten Commandments just null and void. But instead, he's going to show us the true meaning of them, the deeper meaning of them, the true application of them for our lives. But just now today, because we're not under the Moses covenant anymore, we're going to have to work a little harder to connect the dots and and get to the application of those things. Because that has changed. Our place in salvation history has changed. Now, what has not changed from the very beginning that helps to give the Ten Commandments ongoing relevancy to us today, what has not changed is human nature right? We still, we still. there's something about humanity. We don't like anybody to tell us what to do. You noticed that? You notice that with your kids? You don't have to teach them to say no, right, parents? How many times did I hear my kids talking to each other, talking to their friends, and they, they said, you're not the boss of me? <laughs> you, ever, you ever hear that one? Well, adults say that too. They just say it a little more sophisticated way. Then maybe they get passive-aggressive about it or whatever. But you, th- you know, we just think, yeah, who are you to, to tell me what to do, right? And, and that applies to every level of authority in our lives. It applies even to God. We say, it's just we don't like people to tell us what to do. I saw this interesting story this week about a guy named uh, William Matthias. He lives in England. The story was about how he didn't like anybody to tell him what to do. So the, the laws of his little uh, town that was that he had a pathway, but it had to be open to the public. It's the only way to get from this side of the town to that side. And so, But he kept walling it in. And the authorities kept coming down and knocking down the wall. And he kept making it thicker. And so finally, eventually, he built, built an archway and put in a locking uh, steel gate that nobody could go through. The postman couldn't get through to deliver the mail to the other side of the town. So they eventually, they arrested this William Matthias, they arrested him, put him in jail at age 92. And uh, he eventually went bankrupt. And I suppose he maybe, I, I think he's still alive. But because he was so stubborn about observing the laws of his community. So as we start this Ten Commandments series, I want to encourage you, are you stubborn about observing the laws of God? What's your heart today? And as we go through this series, I hope you'll come to a completely fresh understanding of the Ten Commandments. That these are not just some kind of arbitrary demands laid down by some impersonal God out there to ruin your life. But these reflect the heart of God toward you, the good heart, the gracious heart of God toward you, that he gave us these principles to help us thrive in our lives. And so I'm hoping that by the end of the series, you'll have the same spirit that we see in the Psalms, in Psalm 119, where the psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. That's what I hope we can come to uh, by the end of this series. So with that background in mind, that kind of sets up the whole Ten Commandments for us. What I want to do is spend the next few minutes talking about uh, commandment number one. The first commandment, and um, and let's see, we're going to talk about some ways that, that this might apply to us. So it starts with, I said the first four commandments are vertical. They're our relationship with God, and the first one is the most significant of those four It starts out by defining this, the essence of what our relationship with God should be at its core. And this one is first for a reason because it's foundational to all the other ones. Until we figure out our relationship with God and where we stand with Him, then all the rest of the Ten Commandments, we're going to struggle to observe them, and they really don't even make sense unless we have that first things first. And so here's where he begins... Oh, went too far. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, he says, You must not have any other God but me. That's number one. You must not have any other God but me. Now, I want you to try to understand how that must have sounded to the original hearers. The nation of Israel that had been formed in the middle of this ancient Near Eastern culture, because in the ancient Near East, there were hundreds of different gods. Every tribe had its own gods. Every nation, every people group had their own gods. And some of them were conceived as being regional, like this is the god of Egypt, and if, if, uh, if you go to Babylon, that, that god isn't very strong, and the god of Babylon is stronger there. And then there were gods for all of the ordinary functions of everyday life. There was a god of the sun going across the sky. There was a god of the dawn. There was a god... Um, of agriculture and different kinds of agriculture, livestock, um, wheat, and and crops. There was a god of fertility. There were gods of storm and ocean and mountain, and all these different domains belonged to different gods. And the gods of the ancient Near East were a little bit like, if you you know anything about, like, the Greek mythology, the, the gods of ancient Near East were like that. They were always fighting amongst each other. They were having children with each other. They were engaging in all kinds of bad behavior toward human beings. And into that milieu, this is what the Israelites had heard and known, and into that milieu then comes this revelation from God on Mount Sinai that says, guess what? There's only one. And that's me. He says, there's only one. Contrary to everything that you've experienced in the cultures around you, all these people uh, worshiping all these different gods. God says, I'm the only God that's real. All of these other gods are somebody's imagination. They have no power. I'm the God who created everything. I'm not just the God of Israel or the tribal God of, of these people. I'm the God who made the universe. I'm the God of the universe. Everybody's answerable to me one day. And think about what a radical transformation that was for these people to start thinking, wow, there's this God and we we're not supposed to worship any other God, but, but just this one, this one only. If I need help with my crops, I don't go to the crop God. If I need uh, help uh, with the storm, I don't go to the storm God. I just go to this one God for everything because He is the real God. Now, unfortunately, the history of Israel from that time on is a history of consistent failure to keep the first commandment they continually were following after all the gods of the nations around them they continually finding the real god to be not adequate to their desires and so they would go after the babylonian gods they would go after the canaanite gods baal and asherah and they, all the gods of the, the little kingdoms around them they began to follow them and even though God said, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, wait a minute, I'll be your God, not that guy, not that guy, they still kept going after all these other, these other deities. And, and lest, lest you think that that is just back then and not today, we have the same thing, right? I, now, I've ne- never met anybody who had a statue of Baal in their house, um, you know, I know you're not going to go to like, like the Asherah service tonight, you know. But we have other deities that we worship, things that we give our heart allegiance to, things that we look to for our significance, things that we look to and depend on for our provision. Those become our gods. Those become the gods that compete with this one true God who says, you must not have any other god but me. Okay, so what I want to do is, is so even though we're really different culturally and in our place and time, and geography and time from the ancient Israelites, yet nevertheless, there's still a lot of points of application that we can make to us today from this first commandment. So that's what I want to do today. I want to look at three particular things where the first commandment applies here in the 21st century. So the first one is... There's only one creator God. Kind of going off what we just said, this is the most obvious thing. Because if you look around, even though we live in a secular society, um, increasingly atheistic or agnostic toward any kind of deity, you still look around, you see there's still all kinds of gods in the world. There's literal gods of different world religions. There's Allah and there's... uh, uh, Vishnu and Shiva, and you go around the world, and, and these religions have their gods, but even apart from the traditional religions, you have all kinds of philosophies, all kinds of worldviews at work in our society today that tell us what's real. They purport to tell us what the ultimate reality is. Lots of claims out there, and then, and then of course, you have popular spirituality where you know, the books are coming out every week, and it seems like there's a thing on Netflix every month about how to enhance your personal spirituality and, and to find your true place in the universe and, and all of this stuff. So it's really out there, even in our more secularized culture today, and we need to be really discerning about what people are saying about what's ultimately real because the Bible tells us there's only one God, and we're told to make Him first. So here's how... Here's how we read about it in Isaiah 44, verse 6. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord of heaven's armies. Okay, just in case you forgot who he is, this is what he says, I am the first and the last. There is no other God. There's no God that came before me because I'm first. There's no God that's going to come after me. There's no other God at all. In fact, he says... So in the human imagination, there's innumerable number of competitors to God, but in reality, I'm the only one. He's the only one who made everything. Now, that's not really compatible, is it, today, with the spirit of our culture today, right? To say that's pretty exclusivistic. Maybe people would even say that's narrow-minded and intolerant to say that. God said that. Because in our culture today, what people want to say to us is like, well, your God, your religion is good for you, but it may not be good for me. It may not be good for him or for her, so you just do your thing and keep it to yourself, right? That, that Our culture today is going to tell us that every belief system, every doctrine, every being, every deity being, everything that people think of is equally significant, equally valid, equally true. In fact, I, you know, I have conversations with people, of other faiths all the time. And one of the things I hear quite often is people will say, well, you know, we really believe the same things, right? We really believe in the same God. And I want to be polite, and I don't want to be insensitive or critical, so I'm careful how I answer that, but ultimately the answer is no, it's not true. That we don't all believe, we don't all follow the same God. Just because we have the same titles or the same names or language or phrases that describe these beings doesn't mean they're the same being, right? So, have you ever, like, Googled your own name? Come on now. Come on now. Right? At first, it's like a big ego trip, right? Until you find out that the internet doesn't care about you. And, um,. But I, I did that one time, and I found out that there's there's four other... There's a lot more, but there's four other Ross Andersons in particular that have some... They have Wikipedia articles about them, okay? So there's four Ross... And, I'm not one of them. So there's four. One of them is a speed skier. One of them is from New Zealand, and he's a, like a, a competitive swimmer, like an Olympic swimmer. One of them is... From England, he's a British expert in crypto security, whatever that is. And then the fourth one was the mayor of Salt Lake City from 2000 to 2008, Ross Rocky Anderson. You remember? I always I always joked that he changed his name to Rocky because people kept confusing him with me, <laughs> but that's just my ego. Anyway, there's four Ross Andersons on the internet, and then there's me, and then. Um, we're all the same name, we all are the same gender, and three of us are about the same age. But those guys aren't me. We're not the same person. And so the same thing, likewise with God, just because you maybe have the same name or some superficial similarities, if you have different attributes, then you're not talking about the same being. Okay, there's only one God in the universe, the God who made everything, and guess what? That God is none other than the God who reveals himself to us in the Bible. And so we just really want to be careful about what we are willing to accept and, not, and avoid this fuzzy thinking that is not able to distinguish between different ideas of God in our culture because that's, it's that's not just in, in keeping with reality. It's not in keeping with logic even. And so we want to make sure that we hold to this one true God. That's one application for today in our very pluralistic society. Now, it's another application um, that we get out of this for today is that you can't serve two masters. See, this is one of the biggest things about um, the ancient world. is There was never really a time in Israel's history when, from the time that God gave them the first commandment on Mount Sinai, where the people as a whole said, no, we are just forget God. We're done with God. We're not going to have anything to do with God. Forget him. They never rejected him like that. But instead, what they would do was just bring these other gods in alongside him, right? Where first, maybe the, the god of of Moses was the number one god, and they'd bring in a... And then we'll just kind of add Baal there, and we'll just kind of add Asherah there, and, and Chemosh, and, and these other... We'll just kind of bring them into the room. But God's number one. Well, you see, eventually... Then God can just kind of got lessened to the level of all these other gods, where where the first commandment tells you no, you can't worship two gods at the same time. Now I saw I've seen this phenomenon one time. I spent a summer in Malaysia, and um, we when we were just getting oriented there, we went around the big the capital city and we went around to some different religious shrines because Malaysia has three predominant religions. Number one is Islam, and then number two is. Traditional Chinese religion, number three is uh, Hinduism. So we're going around. We go to the, to the Chinese, the Buddhist temple. We go to the Hindu temple. We're making the rounds. We start to notice that, like, wait, didn't I see that guy at the Chinese temple? And now here he is at the Hindu temple. Like they were making the rounds too. They were just kind of covering all their bases. And then we went to the market, and in the street market, they have r- religious vendors there, and you can buy there on the on this one display there's a picture of Jesus, there's a picture of Mary, and then there's a picture of all these Hindu gods. And so people there are worshiping Jesus, but they're also worshiping Ganesha, and they're also worshiping their ancestors all at once. See, that, that's, a, that's what the the first commandment is trying to avoid. I mean, you see it in history, too, because in the when the rise of Islam in the 800s and, and seven and 800s, there was a lot of Christian cities that were conquered by the Islamic armies. And the Christians who lived there didn't repudiate their faith. They said, we're still going to be Christian, but I guess we'll just kind of become Muslim too now. So they kind of were trying to do both. And that didn't really work because eventually their children growing up in that setting, they just became Muslim. That was it. You can't really serve two gods at, at once. And Jesus pointed it out like this, okay? Jesus says in Matthew 6, No one can serve two masters, for you'll hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. So the underlying principle is that, you know, you can't have two masters. Now, it doesn't mean you can't have two employers, I have two different jobs. I have, I have two employers. Okay, I work for Alpine Church, and I'm also the director of a, a regional nonprofit ministry. So, so I'm, I, have, I have a board there, and then I have the Alpine structure, and so I'm working for these two. Sometimes it's challenging because I've got to figure out, wait, wait, now, now who am I working for now? And wait, I, have I put in enough hours for Utah Advance, enough hours for Alpine, so I'm being fair to everybody? And, and it gets confusing and challenging but Jesus never said you can't have two employers. In our culture, our economy today, you can. But back in that economy, he's talking about the ancient practice of slavery. He said you, can't, you can maybe have two employers today, but you could never have two owners back then. You could not have two masters. You can't be devoted to, to both of them. And so so he's using that as an illustration to say, we can't serve God and serve anything else at the same time. The human heart will have to choose. That's why he uses language like you'll be devoted or you'll despise because the human heart is going to choose one or the other eventually and ultimately. Now, here's the thing. God is not our employer. As Christians, we don't clock out. God is our master. So in a very real sense, we are his servants now, in ancient Israel, when they tried to serve God and serve Baal at the same time and introduce these other gods, what ultimately always happened is that the one true God, the God of Sinai, just kept becoming more and more diminished and more and more marginalized as these other gods became more and more important. So ultimately, they ended up, he ended up kind of being last. And so Jesus takes that principle and he puts it into terms that in our modern secular society we can understand. He doesn't use the example of you can't serve God and Baal. He uses the example of something that our hearts would be, would be inclined to. He says you can't serve God and money at the same time. So he's not talking about an idol on the shelf. He's talking about something that we would love maybe potentially more than we love God. Or that we would put at the center of our being more than we would of God. And so he's saying you can't you can't love and you can't serve God and also serve someone else or something else. You can't serve God and also serve materialism. You can't serve God and also serve your popularity. You can't serve God and also serve your career advancement. You can't serve God and also serve your own self and your love for yourself. One of them's got to be first. One of them's got to be second. And so Jesus is saying all the possible things that we love in life, all the possible things that we could set our heart on in life, if God is not the number one, then we're violating His design for creation. We're violating the first uh, commandment. And you know, this, this creates really a, a defining kind of moment for Christians. This is a, a really a crossroads issue for Christians because a lot of us have trusted Jesus for our salvation, and, you know, we're going to heaven, but we haven't resolved that God is number one. We haven't resolved fully that we just want to have God as one more interest in our life along with all the other things that matter to us. The Bible says that, that that's not how it works. And so as a Christian, until you come to grips with the lordship of Jesus, with the priority of God in your life, unless he, until he's center in your life, then you're just going to be spinning your wheels. You're just going to be like jogging through quicksand. God created a life for us to thrive, for us to flourish. And if he's not at the heart and center of it, then we're missing out on his designs. We can't serve two masters. Now, one other thing. We said that everything changes because of Jesus. How we look at the Ten Commandments is all filtered through the lens of Jesus. So let's just start to explore a little bit, finally, kind of what that might look like. How does Jesus factor into the first commandment? Well, here's how, that God is actually revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So the ancient Israelites had this mind-blowing experience Where God revealed himself to them and revealed, hey, I'm not just one among many other gods. I'm not even just the best among many gods. He says, I'm the only God that's really real. And so they had to go, whoa, you know, wait, that's not what we heard, that's not what we thought, our culture told us. And as you go on through the Bible, you find out that God keeps revealing more mind-blowing stuff about him, and he's there's more there than we thought there was, so that by the time we get to the New Testament. We see that God is actually a triune being. There's only one God, but He exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In light of the first commandment, that doesn't mean that the Father is a God and Jesus is a God, and which one is better, which one should be the top? No, there's one God, but this one God has manifested Himself in three individual persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, you thought the Israelites had their minds blown. Now, that's mind-blowing for us too, right? So God is more than we can comprehend. I'm okay with that because he's infinite and I'm not. But what that means is that the idea that Jesus is God is really significant. When Jesus entered the world, God entered the world at that time. So look at Hebrews chapter 1. There's a lot of places in the Bible, that, in the New Testament, that bring this out. Here's one of them. It says the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. The Son is the exact image of the Father. They are one. They, everything, that, uh, everything that God is is reflected through Jesus in human form. And so Jesus claimed to be God, and the New Testament writers accepted the idea that He was God, and like I said, that changes everything about our concept of who this one God is that we worship. So it's not enough to just say, yes, we worship God, or even to say we just worship one God. So we can't really ultimately say that Christianity, Judaism, and Islam are all equivalent because they all have one God. They're all monotheistic religions. No, because Jesus is God, and that matters. And so what we see is that the one true God who revealed himself on Mount Sinai, who made the universe, who governs everything else, that this one true God is the triune God. And he's not just a God of one nation. He's not just a God of Christians. He's the God that everyone will have to answer to one day. He's the God who made the whole universe. He's the triune God, and none other. Now, the Bible tells us then Jesus is, reveals God the Father to us. He reveals God, but also that Jesus is the source of our salvation. And those go together. In Acts chapter 4, it says, There's salvation under no one else but Jesus. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The only way to be saved is through the work Jesus did on the cross when he paid the penalty for our sins. Well, here's how this ties together. Because Jesus' death on the cross only counts because he was God. Right? He lived a sinless life, so he had no blemish on his own record that he had to pay for. No one had to atone for his sin. He didn't have any. And because he is God, then his sacrifice could be infinitely big enough to cover all the sins of the entire human race. If he's not God, then... then His salvation just doesn't work. And so this is the important way that Jesus comes into the picture for this first commandment, that we realize that God has revealed Himself in the person of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, speaking of salvation, I just want to make sure you understand that the Ten Commandments were never given as a way to earn salvation from God. They're never given as, it's not a checklist to say, if I cover all these ten things then God is going to reward me with heaven, okay? that I've, That's how I'm going to prove myself to be worthy. Some people think, man, I just get these 10 things right, and then I'm good with God. In fact, the 10 commandments have just the opposite effect, if you're honest with yourself, because we look at these things, and as we learn about them, you're going to see that we just can't fulfill them on our own, that we failed. I failed to put God first. I failed in all of the other areas that are spoken to in the Ten Commandments. I can't live up to them. And so what they ultimately do is show me how much I need a Savior, how much I cannot save myself by my own good works, how much I need what only God can do for me. Jesus made it even harder. As we said, we're going to look at everything through the lens of Christ. When we get to the, the, uh, some of the other commandments, we're going to see Jesus made them tougher, because he said it's about your attitude, your heart, and your motive, not just about the external behavior. So we look at the Ten Commandments and we go, wow, I'm busted. I'm broken. I need a Savior. I need what only Jesus can do for me when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. And I, and I hope that you have entrusted your life and your eternity to him today. So this is how we're beginning the series by looking at, number one, the most fundamental commandment of all, starting with who God is and our relationship with Him. And we see that God is the source of everything good. God's heart for us is good. And He's given us these things to give us a life that's better than it would be otherwise, for us to thrive and to flourish. And so He does deserve to be number one. He does deserve that central place in our lives. And so it's fully appropriate in response to that that we would worship him and honor him and, and serve him, that our allegiance would be just for him. And so if, if you're a Christ follower, if you've, if you've come to faith at some point in your life, then your, your Christian life is just not going to work until you resolve this issue. And maybe that's why you feel frustrated. You feel like you're not moving forward. You feel like you just haven't made any progress in your or growth in your Christian life because maybe you have not yet resolved this one issue. Who is number one? Who is at the center of my life? And until it's God, then you're not going to be able to experience the flourishing that He created for you. This is God's heart for us. That's why we put him number one. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all of your goodness to us, that that you, the true God, the creator of everything, that you saw fit to say that you wanted a relationship with us, that you entered into covenant with us. You said, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. And that you sent your son Jesus to to pave the way for that, to make it possible for us to be reconciled to you because our sins have been paid for by him. Thank you for all of that, Father. And we confess to our embarrassment all the ways that we have put inferior things ahead of you. All the ways that we've loved other things, silly things, small things, more than we've loved you. And how we've just sidelined you and how we've neglected you and taken you for granted. And how we've been pursuing other ambitions and other desires that have left you in the dust. So thank you, God, that you, that you keep coming back to us and keep claiming your rightful place, and we want to surrender afresh today to say, God, we want you to be number one. you got to be number one. you got to be at the heart and the center of everything. We don't want to have any other gods but you. And so come do that in us, God. Purify our hearts. Bring us to the place where we can really say that and it's true. Bring us to that place of surrender. We bow the knee before you, God, today and put you first. We prayed in Jesus' name for his honor and glory. Amen.